reading from Genesis today, from, we're starting from chapter 7. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe them from the face of the earth, every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. Jumping down to verse 22. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. 
Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Jumping over to Hebrews. And I'm just reading from chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Thank you, Simone, and good morning, everybody. Uh, you'll forgive me, in an ironic twist this morning, as a preacher on this great rain, I found myself a little under the weather, but uh, we'll do what we can. Uh, as a, that was really funny, by the way. Um, <clears throat> so our story last week, we started in a place I called Flow, because we got this snapshot of the earth and we saw that the flow of evilness had started with the first people had now permeated through everybody and all the ways of all hearts were wicked in the time so much so that God could look at the earth and say the earth was full of wickedness. It had flowed everywhere. And God speaks of a response that he's going to have <clears throat> in that he'll have a flow of his own where he was going to bring this great flood. The good news is, despite being uh, not so well this morning, I know that in this context, I'm sure to preach up a storm. That's the last one for this morning, <laughs> promise. And we move from flow to floats. Because God's not just going to bring a flood, he's actually given a plan to a man called Noah to build what is literally a box, an ark, a box of hope where there will be flotation and there will be salvation through this great flood. But as God's given us this story to reveal himself, he has built a stage, a flood, that screams out for an attention of its own. But we're reminded by Shakespeare that all the world is a stage and all the men and women merely players. And it would be a mistake for us to major on the flood or to major on the people and to miss the story that's being told, which is one of a great God. However, it's worth noting the stage that God has given us in the flood to explain himself. Because this uh, stage that he's built, this flood, much like the creation, is a stage that uh, is burdened with anticipation. And it positions us in such a way to ask certain questions and, in God's kindness, have them answered. Now, I did promise last week that I'd tell you a little bit about the nature of flood, and it's only going to be a little bit because we don't want to major on stage, we want to major on story. It is true that there are Christians committed as anybody else to the Word of God. Some fall into a category to understand this flood as a localised or a regional flood, and some fall into a category to find themselves in a global flood, and I've met both in our church over the last week, and all have been gracious, and that is good, because that's what we want to be. Let me give you very quickly why some people say that this might be a regional flood. One, because the language of all in the Old Testament doesn't always mean all. 
An example in Genesis itself is when Joseph had stored up uh, in barns during the famine and all the world came to buy from Joseph in Egypt. Nobody really assumes that the Australian Aboriginals were coming or the Kiwi Maoris were coming. We understand this is a, a specific kind of awe. Likewise, when you read all uh, in the earlier parts of Genesis as the rivers are described, and there is a river that uh, logically is really difficult to work out how it flows through the Garden of Eden, all's a tricky word at times. The other reason why some folks find this uh, better explained as a regional flood, and whilst I don't share their view, I respect their view, and should I someday be convicted of their view, my response will be, well, there you have it, because the story is bigger than the stage is that before the flood, there were these guys called Nephilim, some kind of fallen giants, but they also seemed to exist after the flood. In fact, last week we read they were there before and after, and later we actually hear some accounts of giants, one famous guy called Goliath, and they're scratching their heads going, hmm, how did that happen? And there are ways to understand how that happened. But I hope we can all understand that there are those who hold to a regional or localised view and they're not uh, slaves to external sources. They're trying to do well with Scripture and we can sit in good fellowship with them. I don't share the view. Personally, I've been convicted in my study that this is probably best understood as a global flood reason being is that the vocab and repetition of themes is just overwhelming. Whilst all doesn't always mean all, there's a lot of all here. There's all in the sense of how the actual flood is described. It's quite all-encompassing. There's the results of the flood of all life being snuffed out, and it's quite encompassing. There is a kind of logical thing that God could have saved Noah and his family by saying, look, just move over here where it's going to be dry. But he said, there's going to be nowhere that's dry. You'll need a boat. So that's quite convicting to me. There's a repetition and a vocab that I think pushes us in this direction. Theologically, as we think about who God is and his assessment, his assessment is that all the world is wicked. And we have a God who's tremendously righteous and tremendously good at justice and who sees all. For him to attend to part of the world whilst not doing the whole world seems to distort his reaction to an all-encompassing wickedness and uh, his all-goodness. And so I think that pushes us in a direction for global as well. And finally, the way the New Testament reflects upon this with some passages in First and Second Peter, I think pushes us in this way. And that is as much time as I want to give this discussion. Because you can come out on either side and still love the Bible, still do well with the Bible and still love God. I share with you, I find myself on the global side. If you're not there, don't worry. We can be in good fellowship and wrestle with what's God trying to tell us on this stage. As I said, the stage anticipates... <coughs> that we'll arrive with questions. And all kinds of we's arrive with questions. Think about the modernist mind. The modernist mind that loves science. And good, because a lot of great things come from science. A reads a passage like this and goes, wait, how does that even work? With the feeding of animals and the global situation, that's, that's a lot to get your head around. A postmodern mindset might ask ethical questions of this and say, man, I've heard of kind of death spots and people doing genocide, and now you want me to believe that God is good. 
with this genocide. So we might ask, a modernist mind uh, might ask an, a scientific question, a postmodernist mind might ask an ethical question. The ancient mind asks a different kind of question. Did you know that uh, just about every ancient people has a story of a flood? Now, sometimes when folks read things in the Bible and go, oh, they've copied that from somewhere else, they say, and that's a reason to not believe. I'd say that's a very sound reason to believe because it seems every ancient people say there was some kind of cataclysmic flood. They don't all agree with the reason why or the outcome, but they all say there's a flood. The oldest story we've got, the Epic of Gilgamesh, known well to the first recipients, the Cal like in the, in the Chaldean area where Abraham would live, they knew of this story of a flood. The Australian Aboriginals have a dreaming story of a flood. I heard it first in our primary school, only realised, oh, Tiddalik. Anyone heard Tiddalik about the, the, the frog who swallows up the ocean and then I think a brolga makes him laugh and he spits it out and floods the earth. So we've got stories that exist all acknowledging a flood. It seems beyond contention that there was a flood. But we want to know why flood. Just because Gilgamesh might be the first story doesn't mean it's the accurate story. It seems a better witness has arrived in Genesis and says, here's why the flood. Here's what to understand on this stage. And what I love about God using this provocative stage of a crazy flood is that he says to the scientific mind, hey, I want you to know the way I act and the way I save is beyond the bounds of the natural order. I do things supernaturally sometimes. He says to the ethical question, which is a good question, hey, I hope you'll realise that I'm a God who is righteous enough that when I see evil everywhere, I do what you ask me to do when you, ask, when you watch the news. I act upon it, even when it grieves me. And I want you to know that I'm right when I judge, that even when I see the whole world as problematic, if I see one guy who is righteous, I'm able to be attentive to that. Now, surely Noah could have been destroyed and just been put down to collateral damage of doing a really good thing in stopping the harm and the violence that existed in the world. But God is so righteous and so ethical that he acts to blot out wickedness and stop righteousness whilst having the attentiveness to find a righteous needle in an earth-sized haystack. This stage is provocative. It tells a story of a God who is not like the gods of the ancient world, of Gilgamesh and other epics, who is bent on destruction, but it tells of a God who is gracious in salvation and patience. It's not a spontaneous, I've done my block and now I'm destroying the earth, but he's very patient in announcing what he's going to do. So the big idea this morning on this stage is this, that the God of the Bible is a saving God. He's used this provocative stage that is laden with baggage to say everything you've heard, no, I'm a saving God and a gracious God, an ethical God, a big God, and I'm a God of salvation.
And so this morning we've got three questions we want to ask about salvation. Salvation for who? Salvation from what? And salvation for what? Let's see what we can do in the next few minutes. Salvation for who? Verses 1 to 5. Let's talk here. God's going to bring this flood... And we read from the first verse of this morning, then, God, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, go into the box, you and your whole family. So go into this box so that you'll be saved from the flood that's going to destroy everybody. God is going to save Noah and his family. Why does he choose to save Noah and his family? Well, it's right there in the verse, isn't it? And it might challenge you a little bit just to tune up some language. He says, because I have found you righteous in this generation. What can we conclude from that? Here's what I conclude. God saves the righteous. Now, sometimes we have language that explains certain things and it can get confused. We might say things like, um, you know, church isn't a uh, museum for the saints, but a hospital for sinners sort of we might say only bad people actually go to heaven sort of truth is that God only saves the righteous here's an example the reason God saves Noah is because he's righteous Jesus Christ when he walked the earth and Matthew records this in chapter 5 verse 20 he said to everyone unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees you cannot enter the kingdom of God sorry Matthew kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees you can't enter the kingdom of heaven do you ever read that verse and go oh like I have I get nervous about this stuff I go wow so you've got to be righteous to get to heaven yes you do You've got to be righteous to be saved. And you go, yeah, but the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? No, they're not the bad guys. They have conflict with Jesus, but they also have a lot to offer. In fact, the apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, when he's trying to plead his case as according to the flesh, he says, hey, when it comes to righteousness, I was a Pharisee. Man, I was doing the law and walking upright better than most. We might have had conflict with Jesus, but we were the revered ones who did things pretty rightly. And Jesus says, but you've got to be better than that. Noah was saved because he was righteous. So, sub-question, what is righteousness? The language of righteousness is about a verdict. It's courtroom language. It's to, to be declared not guilty to be justified, which we like to remember as just as if I never sinned. So Noah was saved because he was righteous, because he was declared not guilty. Would you like to be declared as not guilty? I, so Anglican, I would like to be declared as not guilty because those are the ones God saved. Would you like to be declared not guilty? Yay, there you go. Of course you would. These are the people God saves. So we ask ourselves, how do we be declared righteous? How do we be declared not guilty? And there might just be a hint as we read on in this passage. Because God says to Noah, (coughs) Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. Okay, we've got a question to ask at this point. 
Is Moses around yet? No. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Moses is going to be born and gives the law. You know that weird bit that uh, destroys your Bible reading every year when you're reading about all the clean and unclean things? Just a nod from someone who wants, yeah, thank you. How on earth is Noah meant to know at this stage what a clean animal is and what an unclean animal is? Tricky, right? I mean, you can speculate. Maybe there are some culturally clean and culturally unclean animals. Maybe. But God seems to speak like there's an understanding. Maybe God has spoken at another time and that hasn't made it into the Bible. And so maybe people know or he's written these things on their heart. Maybe. Or just maybe we've got an example here that really helps us out. Imagine when you're a little kid. Uh, I hope this works for you. You're a little child and you're working with your dad in the garage and your dad says, hey, could you pass me a Phillips head screwdriver? And you pick up screwdrivers and they have, one's got like a star head and one's flat and you go, which one's a Phillips head, dad? What have you done at that point? You're trusting that dad can lead you and help you to understand. The big problem through Genesis, right from the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was of people who wanted to be independent of God and make these decisions for themselves. Just maybe this Noah, who we learnt about in chapter 6, who walked faithfully with God, when God said, do this thing, when he got time to looking for animals and things like that, he went, wait, God, which one's a Philip's head? God, which one's clean and which one's unclean? Because I trust you and I'm in a relationship with you. Would you lead me? Noah is righteous because he lives by faith, and that's what Hebrews 11.7 tells us. See, righteousness is not something you create of yourself. Righteousness is a gift from God that God declares. Even though you sin, even though you make mistakes, even though there are problems and stumbles, when we trust God, he declares us as righteous, and it's the righteous who will be saved, just like Noah. And righteousness comes from faith. That was the plan. Noah trusted God and trusted God's ark plan. It wasn't just that he was a good spiritual flat pack builder. It was that he trusted God and went with God and walked with God and asked God. This is God's plan with Jesus Christ, our Savior, our ark. Trust him that he came for us. Trust him that he dies your death. That's how you get righteous, that he died your death, so now you're declared not guilty. Trust in his resurrection and his life is yours. <coughs> See, even better than the ark is Jesus because Jesus isn't a spiritual flat pack given to one family. Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is an announcement for the whole world to find out that here is God's plan for salvation. Jesus is better than an ark. Jesus is salvation and righteousness for everyone. And in this story leading up to Jesus, you know, well, why don't we just start with Jesus? Because what God is showing us is his amazing patience. The gods in the epic of Gilgamesh and some of the ancient world things, this is gross to wipe your nose in front of everyone, so draw attention to it, um, are gods that get mad and just hammer. Consider the patience of God who said 120 years and then I'll blot this out, gives Noah a plan. And Noah's going to spend many, many, many years. He doesn't just duck down to the marina and buy an ark. 
He doesn't duck down to Bunnings to get the timber. He's going to build this ark. The New Testament, First Peter, we read it last week, tells us that Noah became a preacher of righteousness. Now, we don't have any transcripts of his sermons, but we do know about his activity. He built an ark over the next 100 years or so. Did anyone come by and go, hey, Noah, what are you chopping all that wood for? God says we're wicked, he's going to destroy the earth and this is salvation. Hey, Noah, what are you nailing all those nails for? God says we're wicked, he's going to destroy the earth and in some years' time there's going to be a flood, so this is for salvation. Hey, Noah, what are you building anyway? Well, God says he's bringing a flood, he's going to rescue those on this ark and so uh, I'm building it. Another watery story, Jonah. Jonah walked into the town of Nineveh and said, clock's ticking, guys, God's about to destroy this place. And how did they respond? Repentance. They said, maybe this God in his mercy could save us. They trusted him. But nobody does in Noah's time. They don't heed the warnings. God is so patient and gracious that not just in Noah's time, this is one of many stories in the Bible of what we might call this morning redemptive justice, where God brings a significant blow, but it's a blow to help, to bring justice, but also to help warn and equip those who are reading, i.e. you and me, to maybe make different decisions. In the time of Noah, people didn't change their mind. They didn't repent. Noah happens, and many don't take the warning. But God continues with these great acts of redemptive justice, like uh, when the people of Israel were rescued from Egypt and they're traveling to the promised land and they worshiped a golden calf. There was redemptive justice where a whole generation died out in the wilderness that people might know that God's serious about walking his ways, but hopeful for the future, redemptive justice. When the people of Israel became an established people, and under the kingship, they started to wander. God said, I'm warning you, you're going the wrong way. You're sacrificing of babies to, to false gods and things like that. That's evil. Come back to me. But they didn't listen. So he brought the Assyrians and he blotted out the northern kingdom. And he said to the southern kingdom, did you see that redemptive justice? Did you see what happened? You need to change your ways. They didn't listen. And so he brought the Babylonians and he, blotted, and he took the southern kingdom into exile. In his grace, he brought them back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus dies for us. And once again, God shows us in a sacrificial way, sin is serious, wickedness is serious, I will act upon it. Watch that I care so much that my son will be the one in this redemptive act of justice. Please hear, repent and believe. And God keeps doing these acts of redemptive justice, but I need to tell you, brothers and sisters, the final act of redemptive justice is where Jesus will say, depart from me, and those who are not found righteous, they go to an eternity of contempt, commonly known as hell. And that's not an act of redemptive justice, that's the final act of justice and condemnation. Can I tell you today, if you hear God's call to repent, do not harden your heart as humans have so many times before. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. Be found righteous and you will be saved. And so you ask the question, well, saved from what? Salvation from what? Well, the first thing that we talk about is being saved from death. Those who entered the ark, those who had the breath of life in them, they kept the breath of life in them. 
those not on the ark, they died. <coughs> and Langdon kindly shared with us the story of two of our number who have died in the last week. But both of those people trusted in Jesus are found righteous, and though their bodies stopped, they are alive in paradise with the Lord today. Salvation is for the righteous. Salvation is from death. But death isn't just this consequence that happens. Death is the righteous outworking of God. Death is condemnation because we've stepped away from the God who gives life and who gives the breath of life and who wants, like Noah, to walk in relationship with us. Beautiful language here of when they entered the ark, then the Lord shut him in. He boxed him up for his care. He boxed him up in the ark of salvation. And that's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Colossians says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you trust in Jesus and you're boxed up, you're declared righteous because you're boxed up. You're like, but I still do naughty things. Yes, we all do. Jesus has paid the price and made you new and you are boxed up. And when God looks upon you, he sees Jesus' track record. Righteous, saved, good. You're saved from death. You're saved from the condemnation of being an enemy of God and brought into God's family. And the beauty of God's salvation is he saves us from ourselves. Why did God bring the flood? Because the ways of people were wicked. What was the outworking of wicked? Just horrible violence. People destroying one another. Our ethical and wonderful God steps in and says, I cannot have people destroying one another with this violence. <clears throat> and so he does what we all call for when we watch the news, and he stops the vice. He's ethical. He's good. But he's better than good because not only does he stop us from harming ourselves and harming one another, he saves us from ourselves in that he comes in in the ark firstly, but in his son and says, now, I've stopped you from harming yourself. Now let me save you because you can't save yourself. He saves us from ourself and our sinful way and the things that we can't fix by ourselves because we're slaves to sin. This God who tells his story on a provocative stage shows that he's different to the gods that the ancient world knew and he's different to the gods and worldviews that we have today. So we might know that he is the God who saves and he saves us for a relationship with himself. And though in something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, when the gods just sort of got mad and tried to destroy the earth, the hero there is Gilgamesh who overcomes. Who's the hero in this story? Don't say Noah. God shut him in. God's the hero. Who's the hero in the Jesus story? God's the hero. God comes in the form of his son, dies our death, and God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, according to God the Father's will, raises him from the grave that there might be new life. <coughs> salvation from what? Salvation from death. Salvation from condemnation. Salvation from ourselves and a salvation that shows that God is a God like no other. And so finally, salvation for what? Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and immediately he go, well, did he forget Noah? Was he so busy putting on the world's biggest storm that, oh, that's right, that guy in the boat. What do we mean by God remembered? 
the language of remembered or recalled, on the divine mind is different to how it might be with you or I. So, remember in creation how God spoke and it was? Reality aligns itself to fit God's word, whereas we say to one another, hey, tell it like it is. Let your words reflect reality. But reality is not bigger than God. God's before reality is how he speaks, and it was. In this moment where God remembers Noah, it's not that he forgot Noah and had to bring his mind back to the reality that there's a Noah. Here is God bringing reality back to his mind. What I mean by that is here is God who has blotted out wickedness and now has a righteous man before him just as he planned and says, right, that's come back to the divine plan. Right, it's remembered to me. Right, it's recalled and restored. It's not God that moves, it's reality that he is moved by his amazing salvific power. And how does he do this? Well, uh, so God remembers or recalls Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Genesis is full of so many patterns, more than I understand. But here's one worth noticing. Do you recall in Genesis a time before where there was wind or ruach or spirit over chaotic water? Yeah, you do, right? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, the world was formless. And the Ruach, wind or spirit of God, hovered over the deep. We're doing creation again. Right? We had creation. We took a snapshot of where it had strayed from the plan. And God has taken a significant step to restore creation. What are we saved to? We're saved to a renewed creation. And the familiar pattern is here. We don't have time to go through all of this. Uh, You might take a snapshot of the screen. Don't be embarrassed to do that because this would be good homework to take away. But you're going to see the pattern of creation uh, redone in chapter 8 of Genesis, where wind or ruach or spirit will be over the water, just like, in, just like in creation, where the waters and the waters, the water above and the water below are separated, where dry land appears. That's the story of the birds. Don't get worried that one's a black bird and one's a white bird. It's not about that. I think it's more that ravens are longer. Uh, different people explain this different ways, but a raven is a longer-range bird and can also land on the floating carcasses of dead animals and eat them and come back, and it can do that. The language of Genesis also changes from looking for um, that things had dried over the earth to looking that things had dried over the Adamah, the dust of the earth. And so we send out a dove, and as the dove goes, we get a kind of closer look of, ooh, not just the mountaintops, ooh, the water's coming down. And when the dove comes back with vegetation in its mouth, okay, the water has receded and dry Adamar, earth that you stand on, is starting to appear again, just like in the beginning. The sun and the moon is not repeated because they're not destroyed in a flood. Birds are in the sky again, and as we'll see next week, They will come off the ark and once more we will see animals and people on the earth and a commission to be fruitful and multiply and food instructions. See the pattern all over again? Because here's the thing. We We are saved if we are righteous. We are saved from death, condemnation and ourselves. And we are saved to being a new creation. God saves to eradicate death and bring new life. 
God was showing in this story that he's not stuck in a broken creation, but bringing hope for the new creation, unlike any other God. God shows us that what is saved is something new. And the New Testament tells you that if you're in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. No longer in the way of Adam, a slave to sin, but now saved in Christ, made righteous... You are saved and will be saved, and now God's Holy Spirit is conforming you to the likeness of Christ. So if you're saved, you're a new creation, so let's walk as a new creation in God's way. My goodness, God chose a provocative stage to tell his story. And we'll learn more about it next week, but for now we can say this provocative stage, this ark has shown us that the God of the Bible is a saving God. And he perfects the lesson in his son, where once again, the God who is a saving God stepped into history, laid down his own life, paid the price for sin, declared everyone who trusts in him righteous by his resurrection. And again, we see that the God of the Bible is indeed a saving God. Let's pray to him. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for your abundant patience. We thank you for how you were patient with the generation before in Noah's time. We thank you that you've been patient throughout the ages and particularly with us, we have seen time and time again your justice, your redemptive justice, calling and calling. And so, Father God, today, if we hear your voice, let us not harden our hearts, but let us believe and be declared righteous that salvation might be ours. Father, we thank you that you saved us from the confines of death. You saved us from the alienation of being condemned and separate from you. You saved us from the dysfunction of ourselves and our inability to fix it. And you saved us to being a new creation, a new creation that will be perfected at Christ's return where we will live with him and dwell with him. The tears will be gone, the hurts will be gone, and all things will be perfected according to your plan. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.